Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, also known as MySpace. And welcome to our Schriever Space Power Forum series. We're so pleased to have Lieutenant General Stephen N. Whiting with us today. General Whiting is the Commander of Space Operations Command at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. As commander, Lieutenant General Whiting leads the preparation, generation, and sustainment of combat-ready intelligence, cyber, space, and combat support forces, and serves as the U.S. Space Force Service Component Commander for U.S. Space Command. General Whiting is a 1989 distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy and served as a career space operations officer, commanding the 14th Space Warning Squadron, the 614th Air and Space Operations Center and Joint Space Operations Center, the 21st Space Wing, and the Combined Force Space Component Command during his many years in uniform. Welcome, General Whiting, and thank you for being with us today. I'd like to kick things off by giving you an opportunity to give everyone some opening thoughts and remarks. And in particular, can you help our audience understand how the roles and missions of your command have evolved with the stand-up of the U.S. Space Force. Yeah. Good morning, General Chilton. Great to see you again, as always, sir. Thank you. Uh, really a privilege to be here, and I thank the Air and Space Forces Association for, for having me. Um, I have a privilege to command an incredible organization called Space Operations Command, or SPOC for short. And we're the one organization that sits at the nexus of these two new organizations that the United States has created, a new service for space, the U.S. Space Force, the sixth armed service in the United States, as well as the reinstantiation of US Space Command, the 11th Combatant Command, uh, which of course came back in 2019. Uh, both of these uh, organizations are about two and a half uh, years old. And, and we sit at the nexus of them because we are at Spock, a US Space Force Field Command, we're the operational command with all the operational capability in the Space Force. But we are also are the service component to US Space Command. So General Dickinson, the commander of US Space Command has service components from the Army, the Navy, yes, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Space Force. And we are his largest service component. So each and every day we support and, and serve both of these uh, organizations. Now at Spock, we are the fight tonight force of uh, U.S. Space Force. All of the operational capabilities uh, that we present to U.S. Space Command are resident in Spock. So think of missions like space domain awareness, uh, electromagnetic warfare, uh, missile warning, uh, operational level command and control, uh, defensive cyber capabilities, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, satellite communications, precision navigation and timing, orbital warfare, and then we also run the bases from which we operate. And we do that in partnership with the US Air Force, airmen who are assigned to us uh, run those bases and we call them power projection platforms because those are the locations that we actually conduct our global missions from. So that's what we do in Spock each and every day. And to get after that, we have a series of priorities that we'd like to focus on. And they're all, they're all built around words that start with P to help, uh, help us remember them. Uh, but our mission is to protect America and our allies in, from, and to space. So that's the first P word we protect. And then our three prior priorities, the first being that we prepare combat-ready, ISR-led, cyber-secure space and combat support forces. Let me unpack that just a little bit because we, we, yeah. we selected those words very carefully. So we prepare combat-ready forces. So 
combat readiness is the coin of the realm in SPOC as a fight tonight force. Our capabilities are supporting operations around the globe right now as we speak. And so they need to be at maximum readiness. So we're focused on building that combat readiness. Mm -hmm. And then we highlight that we have to prepare combat ready ISR led forces. So because of the threats we now face as perhaps typified in the last six months by the Russian ASAT test in uh, November mm -hmm. of last year, mm -hmm. a very reckless test that's created over 1500 pieces of long lived debris. We have to do everything in Spock relative to the threat now. We have to be informed about that threat so that our operations can continue to be sustained in the face of those threats. So we wanna be ISR led and then cyber secure. Uh, these global networks that we have in Space Force and Spock are truly not only global, meaning they wrap around the globe, but then they extend out to 22,000 miles above the Earth's surface into geosynchronous orbit. And that creates a lot of novel cyber attack surface. So where bad actors might try to attack us in the cyber domain. So we have to secure that because that's our soft underbelly. Uh, yes, some uh, countries like Russia and China will try to take us on in space as the ASAT test demonstrates, but they would prefer to take us on in cyber because it's a lower bar to entry. Mm -hmm. And also countries like North Korea and Iran, that's where they would likely take us on because they're not yet sophisticated enough, enough to take us on in the space domain. So, so that's our, our first prior, uh, priority is to prepare those combat ready ISR led cyber secure space and combat support forces. Our second priority is about partnerships because everything we do is built on trusted partnerships across the US government, but with our international allies and partners as well and commercial and academia. And then finally, our third priority is to project combat power in the domain um, in, in all the ways that, that uh, any military service would and then force packaging that together to execute missions. So I'm excited about the next hour as we get to talk about what Spock does, but that's a, that's a little to get us started. Well, that's terrific. So if, if I could just pull a thread, just a, could you talk a little bit of what it means to be more to be a service component as opposed to your, what sounds like your operational combatant fight tonight role? What, what the difference between those two is for our audience. So as a service component, I am the commander of space forces for General Dickinson, the commander of US Space Command. Um, and, and he then looks to me to make sure that, that the forces are, are ready to go. And, and then we give him our best military advice on planning uh, and helping to shape the, the O plans and the campaign plans that his organization uh, is working. And then I present those forces to his two subordinate components. One of them is called the Combined Force Space Component Command, which you mentioned I had the privilege to command a few years mm -hmm. ago. Uh, Major General Deanna Burt is that commander at Vandenberg. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's another component called the Joint Task Force Space Defense. And so we provide forces to those commanders and then they provide uh, operational direction to our forces. And are you in that chain of command then from General Dickinson down to those command centers? Uh, no, I am not. Uh, okay. So I'm a service a force provider. There you in, go. In okay, way. thanks. That, that I think that helps explain how your role fits in, which uh, I think has been confusing to a lot of people just because the Space Force is so new and the construct is quite different than some of the other services. So yes, thanks for that clarification. Now, I know that um, many people in and out of the defense profession are watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if most of the reporting is focused on air and ground operations there, but it seems that the space and counter space activities are starting to trickle out into the press or at least the effects of those. And we're seeing the Ukrainian um, forces rely on some commercial assets. And with all the commercial imagery and satellite communications uh, that we see them leveraging from essentially non-military sources, what, what do you think about the future of commercial integration with US Space Forces in both how you plan, 
but also how you would envision conducting wartime operations. Yeah, I think it's absolutely vital. And uh, we, it's something we've been doing for a while, but I think the opportunity is only going to increase as we go forward. Of course, we're very fortunate to have an amazing uh, space commercial industry in the United States and in our allied countries. In fact, I would argue we're in a second golden age of space that's really being led by commercial industry. Uh, I was only one and a half when uh, Neil Armstrong walked out onto the lunar surface. So I don't You're making me feel old. <laughs> I don't personally remember it, but I've seen the excitement. Um, you know, uh, I, I was in Europe on the 50th anniversary of that, and there was palpable excitement all around the world about that. Well, today, I think we're feeling that equal excitement with what commercial uh, space is doing. I couldn't doing. agree more. Yep. Um, and, and so how do we leverage those capabilities for maximum benefit uh, for the nation and for the taxpayer? Um, we've done that for years. So for example, going back to the, the uh, Gulf War, we've always said about 80% of our SATCOM requirements are satisfied by the robust commercial SATCOM industry that we have, and we contract with them for that capability. And then we build our own mill SATCOM capability for the niche requirements that we have. So that's a, that's a good template here. Uh, I can't ex uh, ex speak with great expertise about ISR because the National Reconnaissance Office and others uh, do that contracting, but I can see that we are similarly now starting to leverage commercial industry for those capabilities. Mm -hmm. So the opportunities going forward will only grow in missions like space domain awareness uh, and cyber and others. And because of this, for the last eight years out at Vandenberg at what's now called the Combined Space Operations Center, we've had a commercial integration cell where we've brought together the companies that we do contract mm -hmm. with and they come together and they have put, uh, they, they've collectively hired people that sit on our ops floor there that we can share intelligence at the highest classification levels. They can give us insights into what's happening into their constellations. We give them insights into what's happening to our constellations so that we can you know, just have a better picture of what's going on in space and operate better together. So I think that's been a, a terrific uh, paradigm of how we can operate with our commercial partners. And I think that will only grow going forward. So you don't see any tension there. You'd see the commercial industry being very willing to jump in and fill this gap filler role, if you will? Uh, I have found that commercial industry, uh, you know, certainly they have a, a, a business that they need to run, but when we enter into smart agreements with each other, we can leverage that great capability. Uh, you know, we pay them for that capability. Uh, they've been all in to be partners throughout uh, all phases of operations that I've seen. And so I think, I think that's a capability we can continue to leverage. Going Terrific, forward. thank you. Now we've already talked about this a little bit, but you know, given, or you have, given the Chinese and Russian counter space activities like their, their ASAT test that you mentioned, both of which created tremendous amount of debris, both the Chinese and the Russians. Um, and then also we're seeing jamming, I believe, of uh, by Russian forces in the Ukraine to try to deny GPS to the uh, Ukrainian forces and jamming their satellite communications capability. Now, it, it, it appears with all this going on in, in today's uh, crisis that our allies are getting more and more focused on organizing to address space and these threats in particular. The United Kingdom, uh, France, Japan, and Australia, just to name a few, um, are creating their own space commands or services along the way. And there seems to be increased interest in working together as an alliance or an, at least a partnership. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on the importance of combined space operations. And you see it moving from a partnership that shares information to a more combined operational approach akin to a combat air operations center where allied and US operations are integrated both for planning and execution during wartime operations. 
Yeah, space is truly a team sport. No one country, no one organization uh, can do all the missions that are required in space. And we actually have a, a robust history of partnering with our allied uh, teammates and partners around the world. Uh, you can go back to the 60s and 70s when we had relationships with the UK and Australia for various missile warning capabilities, for example. Uh, but that is only developed. So you asked specifically about the Combined Space Operations mm -hmm. Initiative. So let me talk about that for a moment. Really, the, the history of that organization, which is about, I think, a decade old, uh, not so much an organization, but a series of meetings, um, was the Schriever War Game, which mm -hmm. the Air Force Space Command had the, the four, good foresight to create uh, probably 20 plus years ago. But in those meetings, we would talk about things like norms of behavior and what constitutes a threat in space and, and when can we respond. And through those discussions in a war game environment, there was, there was talk of, hey, we need to get together at a more senior level uh, into a series of meetings that became the Combined Space Operations Initiative. Now, over time, that has resulted in a whole series of, of positive improvements. So now each and every day, U.S. Space Command has an operation called Operation Olympic Defender. It is a named operation in space that three of our partner countries have signed up to. Uh, so Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom, along with the U.S., every day we're executing Operation Olympic Defender together. And as part of that, those countries have sent personnel to Vandenberg to sit at the Combined Space Operations Center uh, to execute command and control of capabilities in the United States, but also capabilities resident in those countries so that we're operating together. The CSPO also resulted in the uh, placement of liaison officers at Vandenberg from countries like Germany and France who are, who are allied partners, but we didn't have as close a working relationship in space. Well, now we're starting to, to exchange liaison officer, officers and figure out way we can make our data compatible with each other. Now at the CSPOC on a daily basis, they have uh, coordinated uh, calls and sharing of information with all of those countries, individual ops centers. So I think we're just seeing this constant progression of deeper integration, and we're looking to continue to extend that as we move forward. Terrific. I've, I've always, well, I've, in my experiences, I've found that our allies are of great benefit to our national security, and we share that share mutual concerns. Uh, if I could just pull a thread there, one of always though, one of always the uh, biggest complaints is overclassification of on our part, and and maybe not sharing um, uh, things with our allies that would make them more effective. Is that still a problem in in the space domain? It it seems like it it comes up in other domains. Uh, this is an infinite race, and so we will okay. be running this race forever. But I think we've made progress. Yeah. Of course, it's never fast enough, or or to the point at which everyone would say we're satisfied with where we are. Uh, but we absolutely have made progress. Uh, okay. In fact, one of the areas we've made progress on through the CSPO uh, is now when we see activity like the Russian ASAT test, you will see very quick messaging that typically follows from not only in the US government and Joe Raymond's talked about the first time you wanted to do one of those messages, how long it took to get out, but now we've tightened that OODA loop, if you will, but now you'll see our partner nations who equally care about space are messaging very similarly with us. Um, so that, that's because we've been able to share information in a, at a deeper level. And now we're working to extend that sharing beyond just the traditional five eyes to mm -hmm. other uh, NATO and, and allied partners. Um, so I think we're making progress, but we will we will have this conversation again in five years and hopefully <laughs> I can say we're continuing to continuing make progress. Continuing to do that, yes, terrific. You know, another area that uh, you already brought up was uh, space domain awareness. and. You know, every commander and every domain craves situational awareness within their domain and even in other domains. Uh, for example, in the air domain, uh, every pilot wants to know about the air threats out there. 
but they're also worried about the surface-to-air threat. So they, they're, they're not just worried about situational awareness within their domain, but from other domains that can affect them for sure. I would expect that's true in the space domain as well. Um, and, and indeed, you have a kind of a separate name for it, rather than situational awareness, you call it space domain awareness, but it's the same intent, I, I assume. Uh, recently, we've seen deployment of the new space fence, which I think is great news to help us better understand uh, the orbits of satellites in, in low Earth orbit. And we've seen the success of the GSAP satellite program for helping us better understand what's happening at, at geosynchronous altitudes and the deployment of ground-based space surveillance telescopes, which further help us understand the geosynchronous environment. And they're all meant to help our nation determine and attribute, and attribute what's going on in space and if anybody's planning to do bad things to our systems. Uh, what can you tell us about this key area and are there other advances that we can expect to see from the Space Force in the near future in support of growing interest across the various orbital regions from low Earth orbit to medium Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit? Yes, sir. Just like when you were the STRATCOM commander and it was your top priority, it remains General Dickinson, the U.S. Space Command commander's top priority as well. Um, you know, it's kind of like with your pay, no matter how much you have, you probably would take some more. And so we always are looking for more space domain awareness. Let me share a few statistics, which will give you a sense of how fast uh, the uh, environment is changing. So in the year 2021, we had a 31% increase in trackable objects on orbit. Uh, if you go back to 2020 and take a two-year window from 1 January 2020 to 31 December 2021, two years, 64% increase. And so now we talk about having over 45,000 trackable pieces of debris on orbit and, and, and active satellites. Mm -hmm. uh, that's for a number of reasons. One is the mega constellations that we're seeing launch now, just a lot more things being put into orbit. Uh, we saw the reckless behavior of the Russian ASAT test, which created a lot of long-lived mm -hmm. debris. And then as you highlighted, sir, we have better sensors now like space right. vents, which are helping us to track objects that were on orbit, we just couldn't track them uh, previously. So we have to continue to build out that capability. And so we do have some additional uh, capability. You mentioned GSAP, we recently OPS accepted two new uh, GSAP satellites, and we presented those to, to uh, US Space Command to increase their capability. Mm -hmm. uh, we also are uh, on the cusp of, of, uh, of uh, bringing to operations a new space surveillance telescope, as you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. with one of our partner nations. Uh, where We are working this year over the next 12 months to deliver a new uh, space domain awareness command and control capability called ATLAS that will replace the venerable SPADOC system that's been around uh, okay. for decades. And that's an important enhancement uh, for us. Um, we're partnering with AFRL on capabilities to go to ex-geo or cis-lunar, so out beyond uh, geosynchronous orbit. Uh, and then the Space Force is also working on a new advanced uh, deep space um, tracking radar that we'll field in the next few years as well. So we'll continue to make uh, uh, progression as we go. And then I'm sure there'll continue to be a demand for even more. And we'll look to places like commercial to help there. Uh, okay. So. All right. You know, um, I believe, is it um, commerce that uh, Department of Commerce that's going there we're talking about, or maybe we have kind of like the FAA does air domain for peacetime operations and normal operations in the air domain. Um, but then we also have a, a military service, the Air Force that worries about space situ or air situational awareness um, in, in case of conflict. So we kind of have two layers, two levels of responsibilities. And I think I read where the tracking of objects in space may just the day-to-day -day tracking and keeping track of things just as the FAA does 
with air traffic control may shift out or has shifted out. And you can tell, tell our audience from under your responsibilities uh, to another department. And, and if it has, how do you see that being parsed? And is it an issue at all from the way you view uh, operating in the space domain? Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, we're excited about what Department of Commerce is now preparing to mm -hmm. do. But of course, the Air Force over the decades and then the Space Force inherited uh, built the world's best space domain awareness tracking capability because we had a military requirement to do mm -hmm. that. And over time, we found that we had the best information, so we would provide warnings to the world about po uh, potential collisions on orbit. But but much of that is not an inherent military responsibility. It's a it's an output of what we are doing for military purposes. Okay. So a few years ago, the National Space Council and Space Policy Directive Three said that the Department of Commerce should take on the civil and commercial aspects of that to allow us to focus just on the military aspects that we need to focus on. And we applaud that. Now that policy says that the Department of Defense will continue to uh, maintain the authoritative space catalog. So we still will be responsible for tracking okay. all of that information, but they will take uh, that then and, and use it for civil and commercial purposes to do basic space traffic management and space, um, uh, space situational awareness and provide those services uh, out to uh, commercial uh, and civil users. Uh, they are ramping up to do that. We are in deep partnership with them Correct. and uh, we look forward to continuing to help bring that to fruition. So you think it's a benefit actually, kind of this dividing of responsibilities? Yes, because it allows our warfighters then to uh, focus on the military unique tasks that we need to perform for national security and let them handle the, let Department of Commerce handle the other important uh, aspects, but that don't need to be done by a military service. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for explaining that. I think there was some confusion on, on those roles and responsibilities. Uh, you know, moving from the service to the combatant command uh, responsibilities, uh, U.S. Space Command, I think in the command plans has been assigned uh, an area of responsibility from 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth and up. In fact, I think General Dickinson takes uh, some level of pride in being able to tell the other combatant commanders that he has the biggest area of responsibility. In fact, it's infinite. But, but this obviously includes the protect and defend mission of our critical space assets in Earth orbit. And you've already touched on this a bit, but I'd, I'd like to if you, see if you could expand on it. Uh, we see China uh, putting um, landing on the dark side of the moon. And it's kind of hard to keep track of what goes on the far side of the moon since it never faces the Earth. And we've also seen them put satellites at the range points around the moon, uh, fixed, fixed locations there that could give us pause. Uh, given these activities, do you see the Space Force developing capabilities to provide the US Space Command commander, the space domain awareness, and perhaps other capabilities, in, including those that would be intended to deter bad behavior. Uh, and what people are referring to, and I think you even said cis lunar space. So beyond geosynchronous, all the way out to the moon and, and to the Lagrange points uh, around the moon. Yes, sir. No doubt our space domain awareness capabilities over the years have been primarily focused on uh, you know, low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and out to geosynchronous orbit. And just maintaining space domain awareness of that immense volume of space is a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. But as you highlight, uh, we are now seeing uh, other actors go to the moon, go to lunar orbit, and we do need to be concerned and interested in what they are doing there. So uh, I'm very proud of our Space Delta II, which is our space domain awareness delta. Mm -hmm. It's headquartered at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado Springs, but units around the world, they have given the ex-geo mission now to our 19th Space Defense Squadron at Dahlgren, Virginia, and it's their job to now go partner with other organizations like AFRL, 
AFRL, for example, is building a satellite they call CHIPS, the Cislunar Highway Patrol System. For those of us of a certain age, we understand the reference to CHIPS and that yeah. old TV yes. show. Yes. But in a few years, that launch will go uh, to the moon and it'll, it'll help us figure out how to do space domain awareness from lunar orbit. So we think that is well-timed by AFRL doing exactly what we expect our research laboratory to be doing to, to help uh, be a pathfinder to help us figure out how to conduct operations. So our, our 19th Space Defense Squadron is partnering with AFRL and, and partnering with academic organizations, partnering with NASA. Uh, there are pockets of cislunar and XGO excellence out there. And now we're, we're working all with all of them to, to create a community of interest and then start to develop a picture of what is happening in, in lunar uh, space. You know, I, I often get a question general from our young guardians Will the Space Force be a brown water Space Force or will it be a blue water Space Force? Mm -hmm. And for those who may not uh, immediately understand that reference, it's a, it's a reference to the Navy. Will we be a, a brown water Navy, a littoral Navy who's focused on influencing uh, actions ashore? Or will we be a blue water Navy focused on controlling the sea lanes? Well, we're gonna have to be both in the Space Force. Certainly today we're, we're more focused on terrestrial uh, operations, but as commerce, as NASA, as other countries uh, start to go to the moon and beyond, we will have to pivot up and, and out toward those uh, orbital regimes. And so I'm, I'm proud of the team as we're starting to, to look at that to make sure that we're ahead of the threat. Great, and you mentioned the Air Force Research Labs uh, experiment that's coming up. Is that gonna be akin to GSAP, uh, oh, uh, a satellite system that can begin to give us a sense of what's happening in lunar orbit? I would say it's probably more akin to ORS-5 or the Space 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 Surveillance Satellite, SBSS. Okay. So, uh, you know, kind of a, a vacuum cleaner in space that can, that can uh, you know, get data from what's going on in the lunar orbit. Okay, whether it's man-made or natural or whatever, just anything that's in orbit around so, the moon. Yes, sir. Okay, and, and you also mentioned NASA. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you did. I always assumed that um, since NASA intends to put humans back on, on the surface of the moon, and as other countries do the same thing, that they're gonna be worried about space traffic management, if you will, if for no other reason, the safety of their operations in lunar orbit. Um, and so you mentioned them and, and you see them as being a contributor uh, to space domain awareness in the cislunar uh, regime uh, going forward? Yeah, NASA is a fantastic partner. And I, just as a citizen, am, am inspired by what they're doing with Artemis and going back to the moon. I can't wait to be of an age where I can, uh, you know, personally, uh, you know, watch and, and, and feel what's going to, that's going to be like when American astronauts walk back out on the lunar surface. Uh, but yes, we have a great teamwork with them. They have, uh, they have personnel that sit with us uh, okay. at Vandenberg uh, that, that, we perform collision avoidance for the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Of course, through their own uh, tracking sensors, they have uh, data that we that we want to be able to leverage. We have data from our sensors that is of interest to them on planetary defense, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lieutenant General John Shaw, the Deputy Commander, U.S. Space Command, mm -hmm. recently uh, had some words on on how we're supporting uh, now uh, NASA with the planetary defense. So I think we just want to continue to be great teammates with them as they execute their civil scientific mission and we execute our national defense mission. There are areas of overlap where we can help each other. Great. They certainly were great partners when I was at U.S. Stratcom and. Uh, helped us out tremendously. And some of the things, very things you talked about, space debris and predictions on satellites re-entering, et cetera. Yes, so they, they're a terrific partner. I'm glad to hear they're gonna be part of that. It makes, makes sense to me as well. Um, you, you, you said something a little earlier today that I'd like to again revisit. And, and that was the notion of tactical ISR or ISR from space. Um, one of the main areas of interest in Congress and industry 
is what the future holds for the Space Force in providing, the Space Force now, in providing operational and tactical ISR to regional combatant commanders and their forces. That seems to be an insatiable appetite that the regionals have for understanding what's going on in the terrestrial element uh, of, of their authority. Um, the Space Force already provides vital enabling capabilities such as missile warning, over the horizon communications, position navigation and timing, weather and other capabilities. But, but do you see a role for the Space Operations Command and the Space Force as a vital provider of intelligence products from space, whether they be signals intelligence or um, optical or, or visual intelligence yes, systems? Sir. You know, uh, we talked about space being a team sport, and one of our fantastic teammates is the National Reconnaissance Office, and, and the intelligence community have built the world's best overhead ISR architecture, bar none. Um, but just like all the other services provide Title 10 ISR, whether that's from in the Air Force, uh, remotely piloted aircraft, or an RC-135, and of course the Army, the Navy, and the Marines all have tactical ISR capability, we do think that the the uh, lowering of launch costs that we've seen over the last several years, as well as uh, lowering of satellite production costs, gives us a new way of thinking about Title 10 ISR that we might be able to provide. So a mission like GMTI, uh, Ground Moving Target Indicator, something the Department of the Air Force has done for decades with uh, aircraft like the JSTARS, perhaps we could do that from space more effectively. Of course, uh, in the space domain, you can freely overfly any point on the earth and there's no denied airspace in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, and you have wide fields of view and perhaps that's a mission that we could take to space and provide that Title 10 ISR in uh, direct support of combatant commanders. Uh, I know that works on going, looking at that at the headquarters Space Force. And uh, if, a, if a system is purchased and, and brought to, to operations, we would expect to operate that in Spock and would be, uh, you know, would be ready to do so. So you don't see it as an either or, you see it as a complement. Uh, going forward with the national systems and what the Space Force could provide as well to fill this gap in combatant commander desires. Yes, sir. ISR, as you know, as a former combatant commander, uh, no combatant commander ever said, I have enough ISR. And so there's always the ability to, to do more to, to better enable our warfighters. And so I, I think that's the, that's the question that we're asking and looking at right now. Good. Well, and I think there's historic precedent in the air domain. I know uh, I had the great privilege to command the Ninth Reconnaissance Wing which is our U-2 operations, which are still in operation today. But they started out as, as a strategic system, uh, not controlled by the Air Force, and uh, eventually migrated into a system that not only still can, can serve national interests, national intelligence request interests, but at the same time has much tighter links and abilities to serve the regional combatant commanders in warfighting circumstances or indications and warning uh, in the indications and warning mission. And so we've seen this transition happen in the air domain our augmentation with the, the service doing it alongside of uh, national assets. So the way you describe it, I think makes perfect sense going forward that uh, this, would, this would be a great addition and fill in some of these gaps that perhaps are unfillable in the end, but are certainly necessary to be filled as best we can today. So. Yes, sir. And, sir, I know you'd be proud to know I was just at Beale a couple months ago. Oh. Uh, 
the ninth reconnaissance wing still is the uh, host of one of our uh, space squadrons there, mm -hmm. the seventh space space warning squadron mm -hmm. uh, which is a phased array radar doing great work uh, providing missile warning and space domain awareness for the nation and they have a fantastic partnership with the ninth there uh, you know as a as just a former aeronautical engineer uh, getting to see those mighty u2 aircraft still taken off and land it's amazing they didn't amazing put you in the back seat and uh, give unfortunately you a not <laughs> Did you get in a chase car even <laughs> i have done that yeah yes, okay yeah. good yeah no it's a great partnership out there and the seventh uh, does a tremendous job and service of our nation that's for sure um you know when i was uh it, well in, in the recent past you, you focus heavily on cyber integration at the space squadron level the sops level and even at the delta level uh, given the threats facing both the ground and space segments of our national space infrastructure um, but turning to intelligence support in the in the Wayback Machine, when I was involved with the Intel support was pretty thin, even at Air Force Space Command. Um, part of the rationale was, well, you're not a warfighter. <laughs> yeah, it's not an operational domain. You just do support. So why do you need robust intelligence in space? And in fact, it was to the point where everyone that came through the headquarters, that was their one tour in space. And then they went back to doing air operations or other intelligence operations. So we really had not developed a space focused professional core, even at the headquarters level, let alone at the operation or, or tactical level. Uh, it, it, as a young fighter pilot, uh, we had in the, at the squadron level, a uh, intelligence professional, intelligence officer, uh, and intelligence enlisted folks, particularly in the reconnaissance business, which I was in early on in the RF4, and they lived with us. And they, it was their mission to make sure we were up to speed on adversary capabilities, uh, any changes to those capabilities, their doctrine, their warfighting tactics, and they helped build us scenarios that we trained to, to make sure we stayed sharp and current in our daily operations to prepare for a potential conflict. Um, is this something the Space Force is looking at imp implementing now, pushing down intelligence support out of the headquarters? I mean, it needs to be there as well, but down to the operational level, and then ultimately to the squadron level to support our guardians? Yeah, absolutely, sir. In fact, it's one of the areas I am uh, most proud of that I think we have made the most progress in as we've stood up the Space Force is, is having the intelligence we need to be ISR-led, as I highlighted at the beginning. Now, sir, if I recall right, you were the Air Force Space Command commander in January of 2007 when the Chinese conducted their ASAT test. Mm -hmm. I think that will be the date when modern uh, space operations history is written that space no longer was a benign environment. And we could argue even, even prior to that, back into the Cold War, mm -hmm. uh, certainly the Soviets had all sorts of systems, but from the fall of the, the, the Berlin Wall till that date in 2007, you can make an argument that was about 17 years of benign environment. But at that point, we all knew that the world had changed. It took, it took the body politic about another decade to fully digest mm -hmm. that, but we right. all know it has changed now and we right. see these threats. So when we stood up the Space Force, we went all around the US Air Force to find all the places that intelligence was being done either for space or from space. And we brought all of that in in partnership with the Air Force and it all transferred over to the Space Force. And at the, at the tactical level, we've created now Space Delta 7 as our intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance delta. It's headquartered there at Peterson, but with units around the world. Today, it has three squadrons. And I wanna talk about them briefly because it's really important to, to get after your question exactly. And the first of those squadrons is the 71st ISR squadron. And what they, have done is they have created detachments that are embedded with and sit with each of the other deltas. So if you're the Delta IV commander at Buckley outside of Denver and you have the global missile warning responsibility, 
your S2 function, your Intel function, is actually a detachment of that delta seven. And that major who runs that detachment may be ADCON back to delta seven, but they take their day-to-day -day direction from delta four. And that, that detachment's only job is to provide the, the um, Intel needed to do global missile warning and missile defense operations. And in fact, those Intel guardians sit on our ops floor at Buckley 24-7, 365, and they are doing left seat, right seat operations with our space operators. And we're doing that in each of our deltas. So that's what the 71st does. The 72nd has uh, deployable units that can deploy around the world in support of electromagnetic warfare uh, requirements. And then the 73rd is where we do research and development and support to acquisitions. Over the next two years, we're going to stand up three additional squadrons in Delta 7, and that's all fully funded. All the billets are already in place. Uh, we're going to stand up a threat analysis squadron, a targeting squadron, and a PED squadron, so processing, exploitation, and dissemination. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are really getting after the intel requirements that our space warfighters need, and those intel guardians are just leading the way for us and very, very proud of what they've done. Great. And um, you may have mentioned this, but if you did, it went past me. Uh, in the in the past, when I was young, we had this thing called FTD, Foreign Technology Division, they're right path. And they were masters at taking a, a, a photograph imagery from space that was provided them and seeing maybe the latest Soviet uh, fighter airplane from an overhead picture and reverse engineering it just by looking at the dimensions and stuff and, and actually giving us a sense of what the capabilities of that fighter might be, range, payload, speed, they were amazing engineers. And um, I think that area is called NASIC now, uh, National Air and Space Intelligence Center. And I, I, was, I was pretty, not pretty, I was frustrated on occasion that we weren't manning that well enough with space knowledgeable people 10, 15 years ago. Uh, has that changed? And um, do you, can you talk about the value of having that sort of expertise that's uh, looking at systems that maybe we see for the first time once they're on orbit. Yes, sir. Um, I think since 2007, um, as the nation has recognized the threats we now have in space, and certainly as the counterterrorism fight that we were in for almost 20 years has, has I think, pivoted now toward more of a um, peer competitor fight, uh, we have seen that foundational Intel capability uh, start to regrow. And NASIC has been an important partner in that. The Army's Missile and Space Intel Center has been an well. important mm -hmm. part of that. Uh, the Space Force is in the process of standing up a, a National Space Intel Center that will remain tightly partnered with uh, NASIC, uh, but that will give us uh, a service foundational Intel Center, just like all the other uh, services have. Mm -hmm. And so I think that'll be an important uh, development for us so that we can grow that foundational capability in concert with the rest of the intelligence community uh, the way we need that to grow. So uh, we're excited about where we're headed in, in, in the Intel world for certain. Yeah, and one more question on Intel, because I think it's so important as, as you do as well, clearly. Um, again, threats will come uh, against our space assets, not just from in-space orbital threats, but also potentially from ships at sea, uh, from jammers on the ground or at sea and direct descent ASATs as we've already talked about. Uh, will this, the intelligence support to the SOPs, they'll be focused not just on what's happening in the, in the domain, but in other domains as well. Is that true? Yes, sir. It's the yeah. whole gamut of the threats that we face, whether kinetic, non-kinetic, cyber. Um, and, and so we've got to look at all those as you highlight, because uh, any one of those could, could uh, disrupt our space capabilities. Great. 
Thanks so much. And I, I hate to, I could ask you questions all morning, but we wanna share uh, your time with our audience who's, who's uh, joined us via Zoom and, and dialed in. And just as a reminder to our listeners, you, you can participate in the Q&A by using the raise your hand function on your device. And uh, Dan's gonna be our moderator, he's off screen. When he calls on you, please unmute your mic, state your name and affiliation for our guest before asking your question. And you can also submit your questions uh, in writing using the Q&A function, uh, which Dan will read, and then Dan will read the question to General Whiting for your response. So uh, Dan, over to you, and we'll see what our first question is from our audience. Thank you, sir. So the, question, uh, the first question comes from Kevin Humphrey, and he asks, General Whiting, in regards to the National Guard members performing space missions, General Raymond testified before the Senate that the Space Force cannot do their mission without the Guard, and the best way to handle these missions is to either create a separate Space National Guard or move those missions into a single component Space Force. General Thompson testified that the National Guard members will not transfer to the Space Force. If you lose these National Guard members performing the space missions, what will that do to your capability and readiness and how long will it take to replace these space professionals? Yeah, thanks for the question, Kevin. Uh, I'll start with a, a personal reflection. Uh, many years ago now, 2004 to 2005, I had the privilege to command the 13th Space Warning Squadron at Clear, what was then Clear Air Force Station, now Clear Space Force Station, Alaska. I was the last uh, commander there that started with a majority of the personnel being active duty. Uh, when I started, it was probably about 80% active duty. 20% guard because the Alaska Air National Guard was starting to take over that mission. By the time I left a year later, that number had completely pivoted and we were at about 75, 80% guard, 20% active duty. And, and those numbers are roughly similar to what we have today at, at CLEAR. So there's a vital space mission that we cannot execute without our Air National Guard uh, partners. You know, what is going to happen with a space guard um, literally will take an act of Congress. And so we're going to have to wait for, uh, for that to play its way out. Uh, I, can, I can tell you as I sit here, not only the mission at CLEAR, but other missions we cannot execute without the uh, Space National Guard uh, or, or some other entity coming on to take on those missions. And so uh, we're gonna continue to, to uh, leverage that incredible partnership that we have uh, with the National Guard and continue to execute those missions and, uh, and continue to provide best advice to the administration and the Congress uh, to make sure that we can continue to execute those vital missions as we move forward. So General Whiting, it sounds like no matter what, you need the billets and you need the talent, you need the people. And it's, it's really now up to the Congress to decide how best to present those, yeah. is that, is that are organized for that? Is yes, that sir, right? those missions are vital. We cannot just stop doing those missions. So we have to figure out how to way to sustain those missions. And, and we've built a great partnership with the Guard and, and hopefully we can come to resolution on this question in the near future. Great, thank you. Great, thank you for that, sir. Uh, the next question comes from Chris Schwen and his question is, sir, how close is and should be the relationship between Spock and SSC? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, SSC, of course, being Space Systems Command. Uh, there are only three field commands in the uh, US Space Force, uh, roughly equivalent to an Air Force MAGCOM, but different certainly in our, in our focus and size. Uh, SPOC being the operation, operational arm, the warfighting arm, Space Systems Command being the lead acquisition command, and then Space Training and Readiness Command being the, uh, the place where we train our guardians and develop the TTPs. So to answer your question, 
the relationship has to be incredibly tight. And I just within the last three or four months, I've had three separate all day meetings with uh, General Mike Gutlein, the uh, commander of SSC and uh, Major General Sean Bratton, the commander of Starcom, because we know that as field commands, we have to be working together. And the good news is, is that our missions are pretty distinct. And so we all know our role as the, as the operators, we have to operate the equipment and provide the feedback on what our operators and warfighters need. We also are the ones who ops accept, operationally accept the capability that SSC provides. But of course, Starcom has to test that capability and give us that test report. And then we can give assurances to US Space Command that uh, that, that equipment is ready for, for uh, operational employment. So I think we're headed in a, in a, in a very solid direction on those relationships. Uh, we're getting some, some outside graybeard help to also come in and say, as you're a new service, standing up new battle rhythms and new activities, what are all those right touch points? I'll, I'll bend off your question to highlight, we have a similar uh, requirement to be involved with Starcom. They're the ones that put on our service level exercises like Shriver War Games, uh, as well as uh, Space Flag. They need to hear from the operators what our desired learning outcomes are and, and what we need from those exercises. So we are, we are building all of those right touch points uh, with all the field commands. So thank you for your question. So the Star Command is your training component of the, of the Space Force. Uh, Okay, that's sure. right. Yeah, I like the acronym. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm sure I'm sure they do as well. But one quick follow up to that to our, our listeners question. Are you involved at all in your command in requirements writing for future systems? I know the, the combatant commander is going to have requirements and the service headquarters will have a, a group that does requirements. Do you plug into that as well as a participant? We do, but not to lead the requirements generation, but to be the voice of the, the space warfighter in that uh, from, a, from, from our operator's perspective. So as you noted, uh, sir, uh, the requirements generation uh, is now led at the service level at the headquarters space staff. It used to be led at, at our headquarters, Building One, mm -hmm. the old Air Force Space Command, uh, but that is now a service level responsibility they lead those requirements, we participate. Uh, and then we also participate with US Space Command, uh, but, but we do not have the rose pinned on us to be the, uh, the primary. But you have a voice, on. which yes, is sir. so important. That's right. Thank you. Great. Uh, great, so the next question comes from Scott, and I apologize if I get the last name wrong, Scherer. And Scott asks, when it comes to traditional Intel training, does your, or do your guardians receive Intel training at the traditional Air Force training? or will they be trained elsewhere? And how would Guardian Intel professionals be integrated with Air Force Intel professionals? Yeah, thank you for your question. Uh, today, we still leverage the Air Force training pipeline that goes through Goodfellow uh, Air Force Base, although we have a, Starcom has a detachment there that provides the space unique training. Uh, and then out at the National Security Space Institute uh, at, uh, at Peterson there, Starcom, provide some um, space specific Intel training uh, as an FTU, if you will, for our uh, Intel guardians. Uh, so we are in the process of you know, building that training pipeline that we need, but still today uh, leveraging the Air Force uh, pipeline for the bulk of that training. Um, we still do have a number of airmen Intel professionals that are assigned to Delta 7 and other locations um, because 
they were already assigned or on assignment when the Space Force was created. Uh, they're doing fantastic work for us. Um, some of them will be transferring to the Space Force. Some uh, want to remain in the Air Force or the Air Force said, I need you to remain in the Air Force because you are so valuable to the US Air Force. And so when they get to their natural uh, PCS cycle, they will return to the US Air Force and do great things uh, in the Air Force. And then we will replace them with Intel Guardians either that are coming to us from assignments elsewhere in the Air Force, or maybe they're new accessions that we've been training. So I think you'll see over time, and perhaps next time you talk to Sean Bratton from Starcom, mm -hmm. uh, this would be a good question for him. I think you'll see us continuing to, to create our own training pipelines, uh, but, but for now really tightly partnered with and appreciate the support of the US Air Force. Great, great. No, I look forward to having him on, on one of our future forums. And sir, the next question comes from an anon anonymous attendee, and they ask, the Air Force and other services invest significant dollars in mission simulators to refine operations. When will the Space Force invest in mission simulators to fully utilize capabilities of on-orbit systems? Yeah, thank you for your question. And, you know, we do have some simulators, but uh, it is no secret that those simulators uh, even the best ones largely only replicate the, this, the keyboard actions, the switch actions that we have to take to command our satellites or our space systems in a benign environment. So it's, it's more of, to use an Air Force uh, term, more of a white jet kind of trainer where you're just trying to teach somebody how to operate the system. Uh, what, we, what we have to do, and there is an initiative coming out of Headquarters Space Force to, to, to build the capabilities that now allow us to replicate threats. So it's an operational training infrastructure initiative. Uh, you saw as well, just last week, the Space Force announced a, a test uh, initiative where we're really growing and ramping up our test capabilities in Starcom. Part of that is so that we can test in a threat replicated uh, environment to make sure that the systems mm -hmm. that we are now bringing mm -hmm. on board uh, will operate in the face of these threats. So I, I think you will see us continuing to invest in our simulators with a particular focus on uh, replicating the threats. And you'll see a similar level of investment in a, in a training and uh, test range and test capability that allows us to, to test in those environments. Well, that's terrific. I mean, um, I had the benefit of uh, training with NASA where we kind of did what you described. You had a pretty basic simulator that taught you the switch throws for normal operations. And then after you learned each system, you learned how that integrated in a more sophisticated simulator with other systems. And then ultimately you got to a simulation where you worked with the command and control element while you're at the tactical level, if you will, and you could integrate, both were being simulated. And, uh, and then certainly in the, in, in the air domain, we do a similar thing to the point of exercising against adversarial threats simulated and sometimes with professionals who are trained to, to emulate uh, the adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures. I, I, I'm so glad to hear that, that you're focusing on this because I know it was a great frustration in the past that the only place to train was on the actual console where you're actually flying a satellite in the extreme. And there was no other tools and capable or available to our uh, guardians to be able to realistically uh, train in exercises or support uh, combatant commanders, uh, regional games, et cetera. And that's where TTPs are developed, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and where you get good at fighting a thinking adversary. So um, General White, I'm so glad to hear that, uh, that there's a focus there and hopefully the investments will follow to give you the, the tools you need uh, in the field to prepare our warriors for the 
uncertain future. Yes, sir. We absolutely have to, to get this right. And, and by the way, our domain is tailor-made for this because yes. other than our two guardian astronauts, <laughs> uh, we experience the domain through typically a computer screen. And so it's ripe for us to put to build the system that perfectly emulates that. Uh, one of my best assignments in my career was uh, as a new one star, I got to be the vice commander at the Warfare Center. And mm -hmm. first time, and the only time in my career I was assigned to an organization that flying was its primary uh, right. mission. And, and I know that the Air Force, um, you know, is always trying to, to build the perfect simulator, but we don't have to, in the space world, have to simulate the, the movement part that, that the flying world has to, where you mm -hmm. want to give the, the, the pilot the, the idea of movement because that's how they, they, they experience their domain. And so uh, this is an area that I think we can make rapid improvements in, and, uh, and I know we're committed to doing so. Do you think there's an uh, area for artificial intelligence to come in and help improve the training environment as well? Uh, absolutely, and our young guardians, you know, they are super smart on the game consoles that are out there. And all those game consoles, if you think about it, when you're, when you're fighting the bad guy, that bad guy is normally uh, an AI, you know, uh, AI creation of some kind. And of course, you also can network with other people around mm -hmm. the world, but um, all of that technology is out there. And, uh, and, and we, have, we have a little bit, bit of it, we need a lot of it. Great. So. Right. Uh, sir, the next question comes from Christopher Stone. He's a senior fellow here at MySpace. And he asks, as General Chilton mentioned, one of the missions of the Space Force is to deter. And to do that requires offensive capabilities. So will there be any demonstrations of our own capabilities soon to deter Russia and China? Well, thank you for the question. I think the vice president made a very important announcement here uh, in the last few weeks. And, and of course, we are completely aligned with the administration's uh, position. But as a warfighting domain, you know, we have to force package together uh, capabilities um, that, that allow us to execute missions. And that's the high value, that's bringing together capabilities like the high value assets like uh, missile warning and satellite communication satellites. Uh, it's force packaging that with intelligence, as we've talked about, cyber, command and control, uh, joint fires, offense, defense, bringing all that together in real time to execute missions. Um, of course, there's been a robust national dialogue about um, classification and what, what it is that you allow uh, potential adversaries to see so that you can deter them. I think we will continue to support the, that conversation as we move forward. Uh, but but we have underlined clearly as a nation with the standup of the Space Force and US Space Command, again, with Spock sitting at their nexus, that uh, this is a warfighting domain and that uh, we do not want a war to extend in or begin in space, but if it happens, we'll be prepared and we'll be prepared to win. And prepared to gain space superiority. Yes, sir. That's, uh, that's your mission, that's great. And uh, uh, just to clarify on the Vice President's comments, I believe what she's proposed is that we would, uh, or stated, we would unilaterally not conduct debris creating tests. And we'd encourage other nations not to conduct debris creating anti-satellite tests. Uh, personally, I think that's a good thing. I don't think space debris is, is, is helpful to anyone. On the other hand, we have, we don't test nuclear weapons. Doesn't mean we don't have them. We don't, we support a test, you know, it's effectively we did not sign the treaty, but we do not test our nuclear weapons. And that's a signal to the world not to do the same or to follow a similar protocol, not testing. It doesn't mean we can't have the capability, that the capabilities we need to deter an adversary. And I, I think that's an important nuance. 
So I think the vice president's, and, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but I think the vice president's statement to encourage countries not to create debris in space by testing kinetic anti-satellite systems is a good thing. You know, sir, as a historic space power, the United States understands that, uh, that intentionally creating debris on orbit is bad for the entire planet. It's certainly bad for us. It's bad for our national defense. It's bad for commerce. One might be able to have forgiven China in 2007 as a relatively new space power that maybe they didn't know what they were doing. But Russia, six months ago, this is a historic and professional space country. You know, the first uh, man-made object on orbit was Russian. The first living animal on, uh, on orbit was Russian. The first man on orbit, Russian. The first woman on orbit, Russian. Uh, and for them, six months ago, to, to still conduct that ASAT test, they were trying to send a signal to us, and they did it in a very reckless way. And we, you know, we're not going to replicate that because it's, it, it just accrues more risk to the, uh, to the United States, but also to the rest of humanity. It also points out that our adversaries get a vote regardless of our behavior. And so we need to be prepared for the worst case scenario. Sir. Yeah. Thanks. Sir, I have one more from the audience for you. And this comes from Michael Merrow. And he asks, the AFRL is currently exploring ways to rapidly launch satellites in the span of a few days. How does the proliferation of smaller, more affordable satellites that can be rapidly launched, create opportunities and challenges for space domain awareness? Yeah, thank you for that question. First, let me just say uh, what, what great teammates, uh, AFRL, uh, Major General Heather Pringle, uh, I think her moniker is one lab supporting two services and we absolutely are seeing that they are, they are getting after it. Um, but as we talked about earlier, I think this uh, commercial revolution that we're seeing with uh, the reduced uh, launch prices that we see, as well as the reduced manufacturing costs for these uh, proliferated uh, constellations really gives us a whole new way to, to think about uh, a whole host of missions. Um, space domain awareness is a, is a mission area that we're seeing a lot of commercial activity in, whether that's from um, ground-based telescopes, ground-based radar, uh, even some talking about doing that from uh, on orbit. I think uh, as, a, as commercial companies have a business case to go into that mission area, uh, we can leverage uh, those, uh, those companies, much like we do with satellite communications. Uh, we don't want to do that in a way that's redundant to capability we already have, but if we can, if we can offload some of our baseline requirements for space domain awareness and then allow our military specific capabilities to focus on military unique aspects or, or niche aspects, um, I think that's the kind of architecture we want to build as we go forward. Terrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we've come to uh, the end of our time allotted for the Space Power, Power Forum today. And I wanna give a big thanks to you, General Whiting, for coming to join us here at MySpace. Uh, it, and I hope that uh, this has provided you a great forum to get uh, any messages out or answer, clarify any points of confusion that our audience may have and others. Uh, certainly it's helped me with, uh, with your remarks today. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Uh, or if we've hit it all, we can sign yeah. off. <laughs> no, just appreciate the support of the American people. Of course, the Congress created the U.S. Space Force. And, and in the last two and a half years, I think we have seen uh, the wisdom of doing that. And uh, at Spock, uh, we have gotten through our maturation phase and that we're kind of through all the big muscle movements of standing up our deltas and getting our headquarters reorganized and helping to birth out Starcom. And now we show up each and every day with a, a sole laser focus on improving our operational wartime capability. And, and I'm excited about what our guardians and airmen are doing and uh, look forward to uh, getting to talk to, to you and others uh, about this again in the future. Great. Thank you, sir. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. And we're here at MySpace, we wish you a great, great day.
All the horses. So we're not quite done yet. Uh, we're, uh -oh. There is a, a very special event that occurred uh, 30 years ago today that I want to bring everyone's attention to. Um, it's the 30th anniversary today of the landing of STS-49, the first flight of the Endeavor, but more important and appropriate, it was General Chilton's first flight on a shuttle mission. So, Chile, we'd like to offer you a happy anniversary. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks for, uh, for bringing that spacecraft back uh, <laughs> and the other two that you had the opportunity to, to fly and command. Well, actually, in that case, I just put the landing gear down <laughs> <laughs> and deployed the first drag chute, though. I mean, this, this finger here did it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was so blessed to be assigned to a terrific crew fly. Um, with a great mission control team and uh, all of NASA to accomplish that mission. And uh, thanks, Dave. I, I um, have a special uh, feeling for Endeavor since on that flight, we were the only two rookies, uh, the spaceship and myself, uh, the, rest of, <laughs> the rest of the crew had flown before. And, uh, and so I had a special bond with that, that space shuttle. And uh, I'm actually proud that she's in my hometown of Los Angeles and uh, looking forward to seeing her displayed in the vertical launch position here in, in uh, the, near, the near future. So thanks a lot. Well, you bet. Congratulations. And to everyone, have a great aerospace power counter day.